0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Krista Tippett. This program originally aired in 2017. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Krista Tippett, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Tippett is the New York Times best-selling author of Einstein's God and more recently Becoming Wise. Since her radio program, On Being, launched in 2003, she's spoken to hundreds of activists, scientists, scholars, religious leaders, and spiritual seekers. Becoming Wise draws from that accumulated knowledge to reveal creative, original thinking and approaches to living a more wholehearted, hopeful life. It is a rich and complicated pursuit, and especially challenging in a world that feels anxious, divided, even frightening. Those feelings were reflected in a number of questions submitted by the audience when Krista Tippett joined me on stage at the Music Hall. It was shortly after Becoming Wise came out in paperback, and a time when there was a lot of despair about how to find common ground with people who think or vote differently. In her book, Krista Tippett discourages us from rushing to find common ground. I asked her why, and
1: what gets lost in the push for common ground. I I just want to say I... I moved through all of last year and got very clear that whoever had won in November, the work that was before us was to reweave something called common life. We do we have a lot of ruptures now. We have we have things that need healing. I think also partly what makes this so complicated is that We also have to figure out, kind of invent, what common life means in the year 2017. And it's not going to look like what it looked like in 2007 or 1997 or 1957. There's this stitching that we have to do. And I think that we have to do it on the uncomfortable basis that there are really deep differences between us. And also that we don't understand each other. This idea that common ground is problematic is a theme that's come out with some very wise people I've interviewed across the years that, you know, I'd say it this way, we can't let common ground be a precondition for common life. One of the things that you've drawn from
0: this vast repository of guests that you've spoken to in your experience is this idea of generous listening. So, yeah. so what does that mean, generous listening? A lot
1: of things that make, that make America great. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing that makes America... I mean, I do think our strengths, our can-do spirit, our action orientation, these are our strengths, but in a moment like this, they also work against us. We've cultivated an incomplete toolkit for our life together. I think we have to hold a few different passions and and questions at the same time, and one of them is how do we deal with this issue, how do we find a solution to this problem, but we also have to be carrying the question, how do we live together? I I just wanna say, I feel like this, this presidential election and this political season is a symptom of all these human, this human drama that's been going on under the surface. The presidential election politics aside, we're living in this moment of these vast open questions that are intimate and civilizational all at once. We're in this moment where, because of our incredible technologies, because of globalization, in a very short period of time, most of our institutions have stopped really making sense even the way they did five or 10 years ago. And it's not just politics, it's economics. It's how do schools work? It's what is healthcare? What are prisons for, right? So we're in this moment where we're, we are faced with really big questions about how we structure our life and how we structure our life together. And this is a long-term project. It's the work of generations. And so we do have to get out of that mode of getting things done. We have to hang on to that. But yeah, generous listening. We have to approach each other with our questions and with a curiosity about the questions of others as much as their answers, and a curiosity about what it would take for us to craft a life together, for us to move forward so that we learn to speak to each other, so that we learn to be in relationship with with each other, even as we disagree, so that we open new possibilities for how we can stand on common ground together.
0: I spoke to this woman last week who's put together what she calls lunch with the other, right? Mm -hmm. This is Elizabeth Lesser from the Omega Institute. She's been for 10 years meeting with people who think very differently than she does for Mm -hmm. lunch. Mm -hmm. Mm Justin, you know, the, the rules are you don't try and persuade anybody. You don't try and swing them over to your side. You just listen. You just be in conversation. And we sort of thought that would be such a great idea to do as a kind of radio project. And you can't imagine how many people I've spoken to who said, I have no interest in speaking to the other person.
1: I have no interest right, in having Right, right. There's, there's so much emotion out on the surface right now, and we kind of have to let ourselves... I, I think we have to, at this point, start trying to put that to one side, let it not be driving us, not be reactive.
0: Well, and it's, it's living with ambiguity, and mm-hmm. that's one of the things you point out about generous listening, that it's,
1: you know, it's, it's a vulnerable place to be in right. because you have to really take it in. Right. So, so I think listening is a basic social art. The way I learned to listen was uh, that I would be quiet while the other person says what they have to say so that I can wait for it <laughs> to be time for me to say what I have to say. <laughs> right? I think that's kind of the way we practice listening. The other way we practice listening in, in a lot of media, not public radio, of course, is is, you know, questions that actually aren't questions. Questions that are weapons. They're not actually about drawing anything revelatory out. I say listening is not actually primarily about being quiet, it's primarily about being present. There are some really basic qualities to generous listening that, that we're actually going to have to kind of build some muscle memory around, like genuine curiosity. Because, again, if we think about how we, are, we get so armed to go into our, our spaces of dialogue and we know exactly what that other person is about, right? We know who they voted for or where they stand on this issue or that issue. And the vulnerability of that is, it's not about being vulnerable and saying, I'm, I'm ready for them to change my mind. But it is about saying, I, I really want to understand I'm ready to have my, the neat compartment I've put this other person and their kind in to be shaken up and to maybe be a little confusing, but to be more human. You're listening
0: to a conversation with Krista Tippett recorded live at the Historic Theater at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. I'm wondering about where you learned that because reading about your growing up in Shawnee, Oklahoma, (laughs) The Southern Baptist tradition, your grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, then you were you went to Brown, which he said was like going to Mars yeah. <laughs> from, from there. <laughs> um, yeah. went to Germany for school and for work, and this was before the wall came down, and mm-hmm. then during. So catapulted into this new world and all of these big open questions and conversations, how did you learn that listening skill? How did you learn living with ambiguity and and surprises when you came from a place that was very certain about what the world was?
1: My grandfather, the Southern Baptist preacher, was a person of great clarity. He was all about rules. Um, his faith was a, a not-to-do list. <laughs> and everything was a slippery slope to having sex. Right? I mean, everything. You can wear shorts, you can dance, you can swim. Um, he was very stern, and he had a really rigid worldview in some ways, and it was actually, you know, it was, it was scary. I mean, it was Hellfire and Brimstone. The world was a perilous place. Heaven was very small. Even Methodists weren't getting in. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. And um, so, but he was also this larger-than-life character who was full of contradiction. He was actually very, very loving and playful and funny and passionate. And at some point, you know, even as a child, I think I sensed that maybe he needed those rules because of his lusty side. I, I'm sure that's not the whole answer, but I think the answer for me starts there in experiencing the complexity and the contradictions and honoring what, what was good that was there, while also being able to get a very clear distance from what did not make sense and I couldn't respect on some level, but I could always respect him. So I, I think that's been good practice for what I do now. And what you do
0: now is speak to
1: a lot of people who have
0: that ability to hold contradictions. Mm-hmm. You, know? mm-hmm. um, you have a kind of appetite I think for those perplexing human conditions that we wrestle with that yeah. maybe not a lot of people have.
1: Yeah. We're so strange. I know.
0: Well, right, you, you point out, you know, we have scientists who can explain black holes, but not mm-hmm. how human beings think and behave. Yeah. Or any living thing is, is far more complex than a black hole. So the thing that comes across to me, besides that ability to hold contradictions, is there are a number of people that you talk to about what's going on in the world, the challenges of the world, mm-hmm. and they say, don't try to fix them.
1: The, the road we go down that is actually not good for us and that, in fact, paralyzes us is, is actually, you know, this mantra I grew up with, I was born in 1960, you know, save the world, which you can't do. And that led to a lot of cynicism, ultimately. But I think everyone I speak to, and I would say this of myself, is very kind of mission-driven as a human being. I feel also that these emerging generations, the new generations, are very pragmatic. I mean, they do have a vision of new realities we want to create, better realities that allow us to be whole human beings and to live peaceably and creatively with difference, which they understand not to be something optional. This is our reality. But to to your question about changing the world. I, I, I like to think about this notion of vocation, which is kind of a word we've lost. And to the extent that we had it, we've, we've, we very narrowly collapsed it into job title in the 20th century. But vocation to me is our fullness as a human being. And especially in a moment like this, I think we can all be interrogating, what is my calling in this moment? What is my vocation? And, and our vocation, it, 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 it is the work we do. But it's also who we are as citizens and parents and neighbors and friends and people in certain disciplines. And within that, I, I think the work of repairing and building is, is discernment that we each have to take up within the raw materials of our lives. And so we, you know, you're talking about carrying this question right now. And so carrying the question of you know, what is my calling to be creating these new realities we want to be inhabit now, creating common life. How can I do that very close to home in what I know, what I can see and touch? And yes, it's not gonna happen tomorrow, and it's not gonna happen in a one-hour meeting, and it's not gonna happen over lunch. And honestly, if you get patient about these things, it's much more relaxing, right? It's very relaxing to say, wow, oh, this is a long-term project. I'm doing something in my generation for the next generation.
0: Well, the long view is difficult for um, the adolescent brain, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things that you, and I think another person that you spoke to observed, is it Andy Revkin, I'm trying to Yeah, remember. Andy Revkin. Exactly. But, so, yes. You know, they're saying that basically our collective citizenry right now, they're kind of like adolescents, you yeah. know? Creative, totally reckless.
1: Well, what, what, yeah, and what he said is that um, that the globe, a picture of the globe right now that showed tumult uh, and places of calm um, looks a lot like the, the image that we can get of the teenage brain, which is very powerful. You have these flashes of genius, in which we do. You, know, you have this potential for great advance and great energy for that. And it coexists with potential for incredible recklessness and incredible destructiveness and impulsiveness. And that is a good picture of who we are collectively. Well, and you also make
0: the point, the inability to self-soothe. That one really hit (laughs) me. (laughs) You know, like teenagers don't know how to, they don't know how to make it better or they don't know how to calm down. So what are we going to do? Just, you know, wait through this pimply awkward middle school phase of life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, have well, that patience. Well here's, well, here's a suggestion. So, so here's what I see. Unfortunately, it's very confusing when the places we have looked and taught our children and our parents taught us to look for guidance, leadership and the way forward. And I would see the entire national political process more or less in that category, is the, are the most dysfunctional and immature places. And the truth is, most of us actually aren't like that. And I really mean, I believe this across the political spectrum. You know, what I, what I see happening that's hard for people is taking that dysfunction, thinking, well, that's what's important, that's what's powerful, not taking our own lives our own intelligence the good complicated people we see around us the good complicated people who are on the other side not thinking that that matters as much or is as real and and you know this whole idea of what's above the radar right the radar is broken it's not telling us it's telling us some truths it's not telling us the whole story we are crafting the rest of the story. What is one
0: secret that you'll share with us that you have that keeps your spirit alive and glowing?
1: (laughs) Oh, you know, I struggle just like everyone else. Um, I think that my faith and my insistence that I know that for the most part This country is full of good people. I simply don't equate any politician with the people who voted for them or in their party. I I, I am separating how I think about people from how I think about politics. I know that is justified. I I also know, again, to talk about this radar thing, that the the people who are most dysfunctional and, and most destructive and scary and all of that will get all the attention. But you have to resist. You have to resist the impression that gives of being too representative of too much. You
0: spoke to Maria Popova. Mm -hmm. She is the editor of Brain Pickings. And she was talking about we have a presenteeism bias, this idea that we're conditioned to look for the things that are newest, that move up in the chronology, everything that we do on the internet, everything on Twitter. Uh, so, there's this idea that what is old is not so valuable anymore. Yeah. So, we go for the outrage of the moment on Twitter. And, yeah. and I wonder how you think that is shifting our perception of the world and mm-hmm. our place in it.
1: Well, I just, I, again, I resist that. I know this word resistance is a little overused right now. And I, I think there's a lot we need to resist in ourselves to equip ourselves to be generatively present. Um, to this moment. And one of those things, absolutely, again, again, strangely calming to get a longer view of time. I, you know, I would have this dream that we could kind of take three breaths together in unison. You know. <laughs> and take in what a moment we inhabit. What a moment we've been inhabiting. You know, we're turn-of-century people. This is a special thing to be. We never say this to ourselves. We inhabit a moment where we are redefining elemental aspects of our understanding of ourselves and reality, things the 20th century thought they'd figured out and in fact got completely wrong or were completely inadequate. You know, when life begins, when death begins, we're redefining marriage, gender, family. The internet is upending basic concepts like leadership and authority and community? And when you start upending notions like that, all of your institutions are called into question, and that's the place we're in. And again, I feel like that's the human drama of this moment, and of all, all of our responses to that. And the, and, the, and the political tumult is just is a reflection, a, a symptom of that. So that's a lot to take in, but to take that in as some perspective for why this Is stressful but also how much promise you know how fantastic it is that we are the ones who are reconsidering these things
0: well it's such a hopeful book I think in so many ways it's kind of it's a little revolutionary I think the language is about transformation right Mm, yeah in many ways and also wonder you know um, Robert Coles he, he observed the questioning spirit of children, right? Yeah. And that this kind of mystery that they love becomes certainty for a lot of people inside of believers anyway as they grow up. And I'm wondering about looking at this world and this new canvas of this new century, what is mystery in your imagination now?
1: I, I actually feel like there's a renaissance of mystery. And um, Interestingly, it's happening as much in On Frontiers of Science. You know, I interview so many scientists and it's it's been interesting to me across the years to see that um, scientists now have a much more robust vocabulary of mystery than most theologians I speak with. And they have a real comfort and actually a delight in what we don't know and also Um, not just the possibility, but the certainty that what I just figured out will turn out to be wrong, and then the new questions I get to pursue after that. It's a way to live.
0: We have a number of questions here about how doing this show has informed or transformed your own spirituality, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what the effect is of speaking with people like that.
1: I would say I, I sometimes find it that people romanticize My life, because they say you know you spend your life in these amazing conversations with wise people. The truth is, I have a job, and this is about five percent of the job, right? I mean, even the greatest jobs, um, you know, the rest of the time I'm raising money and having office politics and all the things other people have. And so, yes, yes, I get to soak in, and I am I'm so grateful. Um, But at the same time, I just have a life, and I'm just this person. Um, and sometimes it's a jarring that, you know, I can have this transcendent conversation at work and then I go home and I feel like a failure as a parent. Um, uh, well, and, and I, I think listening to the show has the same effect because, you know, I'm, I'm a conduit in a way. Like I'm having, I'm having that conversation on behalf of everybody, you know, the million people who will be in the room listening at some point. But I have to work just as hard as anybody to integrate that into my life. Having said that, I mean, one thing I would say... Just touching on this mystery idea is, um, you know, what Robert Coles said is he said mystery is a great companion actually, mm-hmm. and I would say that that's something I've really I've really grown into. It, mystery is it's very expansive, and I'm so much more comfortable with how much I don't know and kind of excited about that.
0: That's a kind of. I don't know mystery muscle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One built. Yes, but, but that's something that you write about in the book. Is that is hope is a choice? You know, it's yes. something that you are you act yourself into, you don't sort of think yourself into? Or is it is it a cognitive thing, living with the mystery and living with hope? How, how does that come to you? Well, then you... you know,
1: the language of virtues, it runs all the way through the book because it runs all the way through the conversations, whether we're talking about virtues or not. And, and what I mean by virtues are, I think of virtues as spiritual technologies, tools to pin aspiration to action. And our our traditions have carried these things forward in time, um, but neuroscience is now teaching us that essentially it, it's the same thing is true of becoming more kind, compassionate, patient, having you know developing some muscle memory about honoring mystery, and that takes this matter of becoming wiser, becoming a better person out of the realm of something you have to have been born with or you have to get old to acquire. And in fact, everybody doesn't get old. Everybody doesn't get wise, some people just get old. Um, Yeah, muscle memory is exactly the right way to say it. And that's another answer to that previous question. I, I have done that and I have in some ways transformed the way I am at work because I, and even you know, in my other relationships, because I have taken seriously that the kind of person I want to be, the qualities that I see in others that I would like, I can practice them and you get better at them. It's not about being perfect, it's not about becoming perfect, it's not about accomplishing. The word becoming is just as important as the word wise. Becoming wise. I'm Virginia Prescott, it is Writers on a New England Stage with
0: Krista Tippett recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. And we're talking about her book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. One of the most fascinating things i found in that it, as an idea in the book, that this is grounded in the body. You know that yes. that we think of spirituality as sort of transcending the body, that the flesh is we, you know, swimming or wearing shorts is going <laughs> right, we know right, where that's right. going to lead us after right. all. It's the entry point for trouble. Yeah. So how does the body figure into this kind of pursuit of wisdom and virtue?
1: Yes. I mean that's that's been another huge piece of learning for me personally. I I feel like people 50 years from now or 100 years from now will look back at the way we talked about mind, body, spirit, Mm -hmm. as though these are separate things. Because what we are learning is that they are so intricately interactive in every moment. And I I think that, that we are intuiting that in our daily lives, whether we've internalized that knowledge or not, in the way so many of us are getting back into our bodies um, and, and really, uh, um, experiencing that to make us more complete, I would say spiritually. And I think religion across history was a full-body experience, and then again it became this thing where you sit in an uncomfortable pew and you sit up straight and you listen to a lecture. Um, it is supposed to be, I believe, this, this place where we laugh and cry and sing and move. And so now, I mean, my I have a very serious... Kind of sweaty athletic yoga practice <laughs> and that is part of my spiritual practice it's not very spiritual yoga and i see so many people reaching to, to inhabit their bodies uh, phenomena like crossfit I mean, crossfit has a very overtly spiritual vibe to it and it's a place that a lot of young people are actually finding community in the way we used to find community by wandering, to wandering into a church or a synagogue. So all of this, this this is about us reconnecting ourselves.
0: What you mentioned about trauma, you've talked to a number of people. You mm-hmm. know, your conversation partners, as you call them, who have worked with people who are disabled mm-hmm. or profoundly um, um, traumatized. And we know how trauma imprints itself on the body, altering chemistry, carrying on yeah. for generations. And so how does somebody who begins there, create a sort of spiritual practice that involves the body? What, what have you talked Somebody about? Somebody who you? begins You know, by... in, in a sort of traumatic state, you know, their body is the yeah. enemy. The pain is in their body. Yeah. The, the disability is in their body.
1: Yes. Yes, and so uh, I've been so formed by a few conversations, like Matthew Sanford, who was a yoga teacher who was paralyzed from the waist down at the age of 13 who inhabits his whole body um, by way of yoga. He didn't write off his legs. And Jean Vanier, who started the L'Arche communities around the world which are centered around people with uh, mental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, he says that one of the reasons um, many of us find it difficult and even frightening to be around people with disabilities is that they carry uh, this flaw on the outside and we spend our whole lives trying to keep our flaws on the inside covered up hidden mm-hmm. and it's terrifying to see people who can't manage that but in fact i mean if there's one message that comes through all my conversations about becoming wise and becoming whole um, it is that it's not about overcoming what goes wrong for us. It's about integrating that into the wholeness we have on the other side. And Matthew Sanford said something I've never forgotten and i never stopped chewing over. He said he's never seen anyone become more at home in their body in all its flaws and its grace without becoming more compassionate towards all of life. The thing about our bodies and the reason I think it's spiritual too I think I write it this way in the book. Our bodies tell us the truth of life that our minds can deny. Mm. You know? Our minds yes. can tell us that if we just do that better, or if we you know, if we if we spin it this way, we can have the appearance of perfection. Mm. And in fact we're losing out if that's if that's what we're basing our our integrity on. You know, our bodies remind us again and again that that the human condition is one of frailty, infinitude, but that that brings us into communion with everyone else. And, and again, this lesson of wisdom is that it is in how we walk through those things and let them be, we honor them as part of the reality of being human, that they become part of our wholeness and they actually can become part of our gift to the world.
0: I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage, with Krista Tippett, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. She is the New York Times best-selling author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and Arts of living. She's also host of the radio show and podcast On Being. The book draws from a well of conversations on that program and lays out new avenues for finding our way through the messy, surprising wonder of living. Among the raw materials for wisdom that Tippett writes about is the body. Before the break, we spoke about how the body carries the truth of a life that our minds can deny. In the book, Tippett writes, I've come to believe that our capacity to reach beyond ourselves is dependent on how fully we are planted in our bodies and all their flaws and their grace. That made me think about the slow decline of aging something we all face if we have the good fortune to live long enough. Let's pick up my conversation with Krista Tippett at the musical <laughs> yes, in Portsmouth. Yes. There's a beautiful bit that you write about it. Um, it cuts to a point where you can't disguise it anymore, that it's really happening. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. That yeah. It doesn't matter how much sleep you get, you won't be 28 again. And that, right. but, but that with this kind of slowing down, I guess, is a noticing of beauty. I loved that. How has how beauty come up in your conversations? Anybody,
1: or, that's an important part to me of the book. It's a tiny part, but I don't think anybody would talk to me about that. Yeah, um, yesterday I was in Cambridge and I, there were all these 21-year-olds there. I mean, she saw, actually, somebody stood up and she said, I just turned 30. <laughs> And I said, oh, you know, when you, once you get over the shock, you just, you're so relieved to be, have left your 20s behind, and I feel every, every decade has been like that. Um, what, you know, again, once you get over the shock. The shock of 50 was hard, too. So I heard something that was kind of scientific, that in our brains, when we're young, and this is a gift of youth, when we're young, we... We are animated by novelty, and we feel like we're moving forward by novelty. But as we get older, we're animated by what is familiar in a different way. And I have found in getting older something that I would have thought would just be death, that just boring and a horrible thing to be condemned to when I was in my 20s. And, you know, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm learning that this is our, you know, our bodies are actually hardwired this way if we give into it, that we, we are given this gift of being able to kind of luxuriate in what is ordinary, what happens every day. You know, the tree in our backyard that we love every morning, my cup of tea every morning, my great delight every morning with just the right amount of milk, um, <laughs> you know, my friendships, so yeah, these are gifts of time and they're gifts that our bodies give us.
0: Okay, Krista, this is from a ten-year-old who would love your thoughts on developing spirituality with a sense of purpose.
1: That question tells a story about the possibility of being ten now. I think maybe he's over the shock of being ten. <laughs> You're over the shock of being ten. He she, sorry. <laughs> um well, I think it's such a beautiful question, and I'm so happy that you're out there asking it. I think you, find, you, you will find that purpose. I think you hold that question. You live with that question. You look around the world, and you take in the things that happened to you and the things you've been given, uh, and that's how you discover that purpose. And then what I also want to say that I wish somebody had said to me, because I was very earnest, when I was young is I also really want you to know pleasure and take delight and have fun and, and, um, and that will also make the life of purpose more resilient.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Krista Tippett recorded live at the historic theater at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. It's a common refrain that people say well you know I'm not religious I'm spiritual. Mm-hmm. This is uh, something we hear a lot in contemporary life. I wonder what you think when you hear that.
1: I think faith and spiritual life are in, uh, in evolution. And I don't think any of this is going to look the same in other centuries. I don't think it's going to go away. Another astonishing thing about being us and being alive now is that in a very short period of time, uh, we've gone from, from a situation that most humans, I think, across the history of our species have been in, that, that people used to inherit religious identity and spiritual identity. And not just a denomination or a tradition, but, you know, 50 years ago probably went to the same church or synagogue that their parents and grandparents went to. And in this very short period of time, we are people who craft our own spiritual lives. And that's even true of people who are still rooted in traditions. We have all these tools for crafting our spiritual lives, for learning from the insights of other traditions, for incorporating contemplative practices. Um, That is changing us. I do experience, like this phrase, spiritual but not religious, I kind of think that's, and I kind think we're going to evolve to something different than that. I mean, I even hear people saying that they're religious and not spiritual now. That's a new thing. Um, including scientists who say, you know, they, they believe in ritual, they believe in community, um, they, don't, they don't have a need for the transcendence, which is what they associate with the I spiritual. The first mm-hmm. the but they believe first in what religion is about. Which is what I think I said in the script on an early date. Um, how are you crazy? But Is this good? Virginia, I haven't I haven't <laughs> done that, that yet, so I have not prepared my answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're I have. gonna have to work that one out. I think
0: maybe to go to a contemplative place. It, I think
1: it's interesting for me to think about how I would have answered that question at 25, which okay, oh, let's ask the 25 year old Krista. Answer. Krista, oh, I totally so... love your
0: asymmetrical haircut. How are you crazy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just so driven and hard on myself and therefore hard on other... Just I held myself to such high standards and, um, and that meant that I held other people to high standards and it was impossible. And I, that would probably be something I would still warn someone about. But now...
0: You've crafted a, a, well, as we said, from the outward anyway, beautiful life and created this huge repository of conversations for us across ages and are helping move people towards wisdom. But, but I wonder where that movement goes, you know, where does the world of thoughtful questions and generous listeners and deeper conversations go?
1: Does it become mm-hmm. a movement? Mm. Well, well, let me say this. I, I think movement, I think the language of movement is necessary and exciting. And, but I've also had some interesting conversations across the years about how the idea of movement that can, has come down to us in the last 50 years is that it needs some updating. You know, for example, and this is something I, I hang on to. I spoke with this wonderful conflict resolution expert and haikuist, John Paul Letera. As they are. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he said, you know, we have this idea in our heads about how social change happens. Um, and we t- where our brains tend to go is critical mass, like bodies of people on the streets. And he's worked in, you know, he's helped create that, he's bring that long process in Colombia to the place it is. And he worked in Northern Ireland. And he said, it, when social change happens, there is, critical mass is a piece of it, but what critical mass does is it works against structures that need overturning. Mm. But he said, something that precedes and follows that is what he calls critical yeast. And that is about small groups of unlikely combinations of people in a new quality of relationship. People, this is the way social change happens one life at a time, and it always has so if I think about what I would like to be part of setting in motion, it would be that critical yeast you know that transforms communities and helps us get to know our neighbors who have become strangers um, and I do believe that it has a power if we're if we're true to it, if we 're faithful to it I also I feel like we've, we have this new imagery of ecosystem. And I think, I think the Internet is suited to us activating ecosystems, because I do experience and you know, the, the final chapter of the book is about hope there is such an abundance of good initiative, good energy, you know, healing projects that's out there all over the place. It's below the radar. the dots aren't connected. But, but so what I'm thinking about is, yeah critical yeast, um, but also just how do we connect up these pockets of goodness that are everywhere and this 10-year-old asking the right questions and activate that as an ecosystem.